Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, St. Patrick Reed. He's an assistant professor in University of Nebraska. We're going to talk about um, virology and uh, the function of proteins that are encoded by highly pathogenic viruses and some of the diseases uh, that St. Patrick studies. Is uh, I like saying this one, chikungunya virus, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and others. So St. Patrick, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Thanks for the invitation to uh, be here. Yeah. Tell me about your work. What got you interested in studying uh, viruses and, you know, what are you focusing on now? So um, I've always wanted to work on infectious diseases as a child. I actually told my mother in the third grade I was going to cure HIV. So there's always wow. been a passion for science. And then, um, you know, after undergrad, I started graduate school. And then when I, I got to um, Mount Sinai School of Medicine, where I did my PhD, I actually ended up doing my um, PhD project with Christopher Basler. And Chris Basler it was a new faculty member at the time, and he was working on Ebola virus. And so that started my interest in Ebola virus. And in Chris Basler's lab, we were looking at one of the proteins encoded by Ebola virus that actually blocks DNA immune's response to infection. So this protein is called VP35. And, and what VP35 does is it um, blocks the ability of the early warning signs of uh, viral infection. So then in those cells in which VP35 is present, you no longer get your usual interferon production. Interferon is normally made to alert neighboring cells in that particular cell to stimulate what's called an antiviral response. And VP35 found out blocks that. It may, it, Ebola uses it to block that. So when the PhD program, I, I started to work on uh, determining functionally how VP35 was able to block that. And then I also, uh, during the PhD, discovered another protein that Ebola virus makes called VP24. And it turns out what VP24 does is it blocks the response after the signaling. So let's say once interferon is actually made by cells, interferon then has to bind to receptors on those cells, which tri triggers a signaling cascade within the cells. Well, VP24 blocks that signaling cascade. So in doing that, Ebola virus encodes two proteins, one to try to thwart the ability to initiate that um, risk response. The second is if that response is already is initiated to stop the signaling cascade that would lead to um, amplified antiviral response. So I did that with Christopher hmm. Basler. And, and um, I, have a, I have a quick question about that. These proteins that are made by the Ebola virus, yeah. I guess they're made only once an Ebola virus infects a cell. But are they, um, does the cell itself put these out to like extracellular vesicles to, you know, uh, educate other cells on what to not do? Or does it only come when a virion, you know, an Ebola virion infects a cell? 
So it's cell by cell that this happens. Um, so that's a good question. So, so what what you're describing is called kind of an- antigen presentation, and so that would be what happens when the cell uh, recognizes a pathogen, chops it up into little bits and pieces, and presents it on top of the cell for your um, immune cells to recognize it, and and then that will trigger you know your B and T T cell uh, response subsequent to that. So you only get these proteins. Uh, when the virus is replicating in that cell. So, so, so the virus encodes um, seven genes and from those seven genes will make a number of proteins. And, and those proteins are only going to be produced uh, by the virus when it's in the cells. Now, if the cell is able to, I guess, maintain its integrity somehow and, and, and not, you know, die as a result of the virus replicating, then in theory, that cell could potentially present um, um, you know, bits and pieces of those Ebola proteins to alert neighboring cells um, or to alert the immune response. So um, we'll move on in a second, but what does that do when someone gets infected by Ebola? Like they'll feel totally fine and then suddenly they'll be very sick. Does it allow that, you know, a higher viral load to build up before, you know, maybe all the viruses in mass go lytic and, you know, start really destroying the cells or, you know, what what does this allow for in those so, immune systems? So, so, so that's so that's our general thought, right? That that the virus encodes these proteins because we know that within your cells you have um, what's called these pathogen recognition receptors, which are just um, they're proteins patrolling around in a cell. One of them, for example, is called RIGI, and and what these proteins can do is recognize patterns that are really specific to viruses in general and not to the host cell. And so what they will do is they can recognize these particular patterns that a virus will come in on, will come in and have. And once they recognize it, they will initiate that response that will then lead to the creation of antiviral genes, which will make antiviral proteins like interferon. Now, what we know is that most viruses will actually encode a protein that will disrupt that pathway. Different viruses will disrupt that pathway in different ways with different levels of efficiency. But the overall theme is the same. You try to thwart that initial response, which again buys the virus enough time to replicate. And so the idea with, with uh, to your Ebola example is that the virus needs a window. That window is when it can dampen the response to its infection to where it can amplify itself and systematically move throughout the body to different tissues to such an extent that when the body starts to react, it becomes an overcorrection, an overstimulation of inflammatory responses. So that then now what you get is the virus replicating in, in all these different places. Now your body is overreacting to it, and then you eventually succumb to what is not the virus replicating, but to the overreaction to the virus replicating by the body which is the cytokine storm that people are talking about now with COVID, but there's something that occurs during Ebola infection as well. And what it really is, is that the virus is able to thwart the ability of an early response. And then because of that, you didn't get a disrupted late response. So, um, you know, I apologize. I'm not a virologist, but um, so there are mechanisms inside of our cells themselves. It's kind of like a intracellular immune system. Yes, yes. So actually, it's really cool. These systems were 
were identified around, like, a, you know, a little bit before I started graduate school, um, guys like Ruslan Medzitov was key into, in, in this and in the identification of these toll-like receptors, which recognizes different pathogen uh, molecular patterns. So they recognize things like double-stranded RNA or features on bacterium or, or uh, different features. And then it, it turns out that beyond the toll-like receptors, there, there are intracellular um, proteins like your RIGIs and NDA5s, which recognize features that are specific to viruses again. And so these things are just in the cells and they will recognize um, these features on viruses. And once they do, they then will bind to other proteins that will then eventually lead to um, what's called transcription factors, which are just proteins that then that go into the nucleus and will turn on gene expression. And they will turn on specifically the gene expression of antiviral genes like an interferon alpha, interferon beta, which will then signal to neighboring cells and distal cells that, hey, upregulate your programming. There's something going on in the system. Yeah, see, you know, you're saying that there's a lot of cell-to-cell communication through, you know, like extracellular vesicles. Why wouldn't there be a case where a virus has developed a mechanism by not only infecting a cell, again, downregulating the interferon, but also using the cell to communicate through its normal channels, you know, through like EVs to other cells, a false condition, for instance? Well, so, so we're sure that can occur as well. So we know that when the virus is infecting the cell, um, the virus can disrupt gene expression programming as well. So the virus can lead to the release of, of, of proteins that, that may um, uh, give a false sense of what's happening. The virus will also, what, what a number of viruses will do is they'll downregulate gene expression in total as well. So, so some viruses will just stop everything from replics. They'll, they'll, just, they'll just stop the cells from being able to produce these things. Um, and even with that, some viruses can secrete proteins and they'll lead to the secretion. So one of the things we know, for example, that Ebola does, and we're still not sure what it means, but during the course of it replicating, it has what's called a glycoprotein, which is on the outside. And we know that much of the glycoprotein is released and secreted from the cells. The virus doesn't use it for itself. It releases it into the extracellular space. And so in that way, it's also sending its own signal. And, and to this day, we have no full understanding of what the release of the glycoprotein into the extracellular space means, but we know the virus does it. So the virus is releasing things as well from its on its own, as well as disrupting the cellular programming. So okay. all those things are occurring at the same time. It's it's a, there's a there's a lot of moving pieces uh, in uh, during an actual infection. So have uh, people tried to knock out the part of let's say Ebola or some other more innocuous virus that would would interfere with the cell's ability to defend itself immunologically and then, you know, uh, use that as a vaccine? You know, what if you um, deliberately injected a person, let's say, with Ebola, but that particular, uh, you know, RNA or DNA strand was removed, where, you know, that, that codes for the, uh, the two proteins that stop the, uh, the ability of the cell to fight it? Well, that's a good idea. And so those, those, are, those, those, those have been um, proposed as uh, potential vaccines. So there, there have been attempts to, for example, make a virus where you've taken out those components. I don't know the, the status of those uh, particular studies, but I, I know those things have been tried. The idea of simply, and, and so uh, just to use the words, correct words, so these would be what you call your vir- virulence factors. So 
the factors that cause the virus to do very bad things. Um, and so if we know that BP35 and BP24 um, can impart those functions during the course of an infection, then simply removing them and having a virus that can replicate with these things being gone would be basically making a more innocuous virus. The problem with that, and that I didn't um, tell you up front, is these proteins also play a very central role in the, in the way the virus replicates. So these, these, the, the, the beautiful thing about these viruses is that because they're so compact with such a small genome, each of these genes that make each of these proteins have multiple functions. And one function can be to block the innate immune system. Another function could be to help the virus replicate its own genome. So if you take it out, the virus won't replicate at all. Okay. What's the, um, well, simplest virus known? You know, the fewest number of genes, uh, the one that's, you know, successful and requires a lot of reuse of the same genes or multipurposing, but is incredibly simple. You know, Ebola sounds like that, but are there others that are even more Yeah, so Ebola, Ebola, Ebola comes in with about, Ebola comes in with seven genes, and from those seven, it will make, um, I would say, you know, besides the normal six, the glycoprotein can make at least three different transcripts. Uh, off the top of my head, the first one that comes to mind is Lassa virus. Lassa has uh, four genes, and, and, and Lassa virus is, uh, you know, endemic in parts of um, sub-Saharan Africa and West Africa. And, and, and Lassa will live in rodents, um, and will oftentimes have spillover effects where it can infect humans and can cause severe disease. And, and with Lhasa, we know there's only four genes. Um, yeah, has anyone tried to make Lhasa with only one gene and see the phenotypic expression to well, you know, different combinations? Well, well, you need, so you need a couple of things. You need to be able to, rep, the virus needs, all the virus needs is what's called a polymerase to replicate its own RNA. And then it usually will require, like, let's say, another protein that it can, that the RNA can be, you know, secured around. And then for the most part, viruses will need a way to get into cells. And, and so usually your viruses can have um, an outer surface protein, which is the one that mediates entry. So, so, so there are bare bones components that are required um, to allow for the virus to first enter a cell and B, to replicate its own RNA or DNA, and then package and leave. So, so you need these different things. Whether you can put all of, these different, all of these different required functions onto one large gene, I don't think that's possible. Um, whether that exists in nature, I don't believe so. Is it possible to find it at some point? Maybe. I would never say it's out of the realm of possibility. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, is, is Lhasa the simplest, simplest virus known or is there one even well, simpler? It's the, sim- it's the simplest, it's the simplest emerging infectious disease that can cause, you know, um, disease. That's a replicating virus that I can think of off the top of my head. I don't know if another one off the top of my head that has, that has a less than four genes that's causing disease to the extent that Lassa virus can. Yeah, the reason why I ask is four genes is, is a very small number, and you have a finite amount of, com- of combinations. You know, I don't know if this would be workable, but, you know, what if you uh, recreated Lassa, but the four genes were in a different order, in every particular order, 
and you exposed it to uh, you know the naive cells, let's say rat cells. Well, what happened? Or if you removed one or two or three of the genes and tried different well, stuff, you know, well, what? I just wonder if it's a good chassis to understand, you know, the basics of viral function that other viruses you couldn't do that with. Uh, generally speaking, yes, I think. But the 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 you would have to ask the right question, um, and and that would be the key that would drive how you would modify, move around, and or assess functionality, right? It's and and that's and that's actually really a big issue uh, in science. That that really the key to most of these understanding the way a virus works, understanding the way a cell works, understanding the way uh, pathogenicity and vaccine develop, all these things. In order to understand these things, what you really have to boil down is the right question. If you can ask the right question in a very specific and driven and, and, and thoughtful way, then we then think of the system that can be used to address it. And then we can simply start designing the experiment and outlining the possibilities as such. But it, but it starts with the right question. Yeah, okay. So what's, um, so at Ebola, I paused you and asked you a whole bunch of questions. Um, what other infectious diseases, viruses are you studying and what's interesting about them? So, right. So after the Ebola, um, as, as after I worked uh, on Ebola, um, I started to work on chikungunya that you referred to earlier. And I actually started to work on chikungunya right around, I was at the U.S. Amrit, which is uh, the United States Army Research Institute um, for Infectious Disease. And at the time, chikungunya was just, uh, so chikungunya first and foremost, it's a virus that is, um, it's transmitted by mosquitoes, similar to dengue virus and Zika virus. And at the time, chikungunya, it was kind of localized to Southeast Asia, um, parts of Africa, and, um, and India. And there were cases starting to um, erupt in um, travel-associated cases in, in uh, Europe. So there were some cases in Italy and in France. And then um, notably in 2006, there was a case of chikungunya on this island called the Reunion Island, which is um, north of Madagascar. And it ended up, I think it was in 2005 to 2006, and it decimated the population. It, it, it infected almost 90% of the population. Wow. And, and chikungunya, it doesn't kill like Ebola does. What it, what it can do is you can get this debilitating arthritis. And in some cases, the arthritis, um, in about a quarter of the individuals, the arthritis can last for years. So it was basically, it was, it was greater than 25%. And there's, uh, there's over, you know, 250,000 cases. And it just, it just, it just emerged that way. So I was, I was, I was following chikungunya at that time, because I thought that was quite interesting. And so I started to grow the virus up. And this is one of those viruses that was identified in 1952. And it was identified first in Tanzania. And the word chikungunya comes from the Makande um, language um, um, that and, and in Makonde, chikungunya means that which bends, and 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 oh, it's because, okay. and it's because when you're when you're infected with the virus, you have this debilitating um, arthritic condition, and so people it's associated with people walking around and with this bended posture. So it's chikungunya. That's interesting. So what's what happened in um, 2010 
was there started to be cases of chikungunya popping up in the Americas. Okay. And so that really led to my interest in it because around two, it's around 2013, really, there started to be cases. And after 2013, there were these really uh, interesting graphs you'd see where if you looked at a map of South America, you'd see, you know, um, you know, a few cases of chikungunya here and there. But after 2016, there were over a million cases of chikungunya in South America and in, in, in the Caribbean and Latin America. And then it started popping up in, in the southern states, Florida, Texas, is Georgia's of the world. And now it's just around. And it just came in, in between, 2000, between 2013 to 2016, just a wave of the virus just flooded the Americas. So what, um, I mean, what's interesting about its mechanism? It causes arthritis. How has that been figured out? And so that's so that's one of so one of my um, areas of research is first is trying to understand the underlying pathology that's induced by the virus. So how does it cause this debilitating arthritis? And then one of the things that I've been working on in collaboration with a, um, a colleague of mine, Eileen Cheng who's an infectious disease um, doctor. She's now at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. One of the things we have done is we've been working with doctors in Barranquilla, Colombia, where we've been collecting patient samples. And we've been able to see there's a cohort of patients in Barranquilla Barranquilla that we um, had met in 2016. And we we collected serum um, from over 500 patients and we've been able to track. So we did a cohort study after 18 months and there were still over a quarter of the patients still had debilitating arthritis. And so we've gone back now and there's still a number of patients over four years later that still have this um, chronic arthritic um, condition. And, and much of the... Where does the arthritis occur? Is it all over the body or in certain... Um... It's in certain joints and it's, and it's hard to tell the specific joints. It's usually sometimes in the large joints like the knees... Um, sometimes it's in, you know, the fingers, in those joint spaces. Mechanistically, how it spreads to be in the areas it goes to and exactly how it can develop this long-term pathology, that's still really unclear because one thought is that it's the virus being able to replicate at some low level and, re- and recruiting this inflammatory response. However, when people look for virus, there's no, there was not really a virus there. Another thought is that there's something being left behind that stimulates a continued inflammatory response that recruits, you know, immune cells to the joint space. Another, another um, thought is that there's, it's similar to rheumatoid arthritis and that there might be some kind of autoimmune triggering that happens. So the virus might resemble something in the immune system or resemble something in the host in a way such that when the immune response is triggered off, the virus is gone, but now the immune system is recognizing something that looks like the hosts. Um, mm. So there are all these kinds of theories, but to be really honest with you, it's it's still a black box. What, exa- what exactly triggers this acute arthritic condition? And then moreover, what triggers this chronic condition that we now can tell affects certain individuals for over four years? So for me, that's a really interesting phenomena that is not going to be specific to chikungunya. It's going to be it's going to be something we're going to find out other viruses do because there are a number of other what's called arthritic uh, viruses like chikungunya, mm-hmm. and, and 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 understanding mechanistically how they're able to do this would then allow us to 
um, think about potential treatment options. And so one of the things- well, I know there's, a, there's viruses that can stay within us forever, you know, as long as we're alive. And right, so- but those, those, Right, right, right. So those are different. So, so you're, those are, uh, for the most part, those, those viruses, like your herpes viruses or your DNA viruses. And, and DNA viruses uniquely, for the most part, with the exception of a few, will replicate in the nucleus. And by replicating in the nucleus, they have the ability to stay with the cells. They have the ability to sometimes intercalate in the genome. Your HIVs can go into the nucleus and, and can go into the genome. They have those abilities. The viruses I work on, like chikungunya, like Ebola, these are what's called RNA viruses, and they stay exclusively in the cytoplasm. They never enter the nucleus as far as we know. Now, they can make proteins that can traverse the nuclear pore and come back, but the viral RNA itself, for the most part, as far as we know, stays in the cytoplasm. So these, these viruses, in theory, don't lend themselves to being chronic. However, we know that they are. And, and actually, what we learned from the Ebola West African outbreak that occurred a couple of years ago in, uh, what is that, 2015, 2016, in that West African outbreak, because of the number of patients that were infected, we learned that there are individuals who had got infected with Ebola, survived the infection, you know, thankfully, but then uh, like a year later, it reemerged, which means it never actually left. So there is an actual, what we've learned is that there is a chronic component to this virus, whereas we didn't know that before. So Wait, so, so in, in chikungunya, if I have it, a year goes by, I may have arthritis, but when you look at me, I, I don't appear to have any chikungunya virus in me, but yet I still have arthritis. Is that what you're saying? That's the point. So as far as we know, okay. you get it, you're, you know, you get the initial sickness within that your uh, window of, of, of infection. So you, you know, you get infected and you feel bad for, you know, two to three weeks, really bad joint pain, fever, malaise, all that other stuff, arthralgia, all that good stuff. And then, you know, you overcome it. But in some individuals, you overcome those main symptoms, you overcome the fever, you overcome all that stuff, but the joint pain, the aches, you know, some of these things can just persist. Now, if we were to draw your blood in that initial two to three week window, we could potentially pick up virus that would let us know that you're what's called viremic. So there's virus replicating inside you. Now, a year later, with those joint pains, if we draw your blood, we're not going to find any virus in there. It's gone. Now, is the virus laying low, replicating at some very low levels in discrete tissues within the body? That's the question. Um, We know from animal studies that we can't really find it. Um, Wait, so have, have, has anyone looked, like if someone gets infected with chikungunya, has anyone sampled their blood every day for a three-week period to look at the curve of how the, the virus yeah. appears to deplete? Yeah, so we know those things. So we know, we know the arc of, um, let's say, presence of viral RNA in blood. We know, we know how that arcs, and that arcs, and that, and that, and that pattern will correlate to, you know, your, your initial antibody response and then a secondary antibody response. And when those things come and go, and then the last antibody response, which is the strongest and more specific one, when that spikes up, that usually corresponds to when you you can detect less and less virus present until you just don't see virus present and that antibody kind of stays around. But now what we know is that in some individuals, whereas the virus is, is gone 
from the spaces we're looking for it, um, the symptoms persist. And so, right, right, right. so the question though, and again, it always gets down to asking the right question. So the question becomes, are the symptoms that are observed a function of the presence of the virus or is it a function of something the virus left behind? Or third, is it a function of something in the body that was stimulated by the virus that is now causing a problem? And so if you can identify which of these three components is worth focusing on from a therapeutic standpoint, then you can now work towards seeing what can what can be used to alleviate the right, right. Have, have, uh, have the joint fluids been sampled to see if there's any virus there? So I've, we've actually done that. So and, and a number of studies have done that. So we've actually been able to collect um, synovial fluid from people. The problem is you generally have a lot of synovial fluid when it's inflamed. And that's when you're actively, you know, undergoing um, the arthritic condition. Generally speaking, though, the synovial space is not very, it doesn't uh, allow itself to release a lot of fluid. So you're not getting, uh, you know, there's not a lot there, relatively speaking. Whether there's active virus replicating there uh, at the time when it's looked for, no, we've never seen it. And um, other studies have not seen it as well. That's not to say the virus isn't around. It just means it's not floating around in the fluid we're looking for. Mm, gotcha. So, so I've, I've been interested in chikungunya from that perspective. Similar to Ebola, chikungunya makes just a small subset of, of, of genes as well. Um, so chikungunya makes about seven, seven to eight genes. Um, within that, it makes about eight proteins. And, and understanding how those different um, proteins work is also of interest uh, to me. Okay. Um, any other viruses that you're studying that are really unusual and interesting? Uh, I mean, like everyone else in science, we're, we've been starting up a lot of work on SARS-CoV-2, um, which, is, which is an interesting um, virus all on its own. SARS is actually way more complex in its genome architecture, the amount of proteins it makes, um, than what I'm used to. So, so your chicken goodness and, alpha and like um, Ebola's of the world, you know, they have their seven genes uh, SARS-CoV-2 is a lot more complicated than that. So I don't claim to be a corona virologist. Um, they're a select breed. Um, but we've been doing our part to try to help understand um, the virus to try to mitigate the you know severity of the pandemic. And so we've been doing a number of, of studies with collaborators who've sent us compounds. So we've been trying to screen those compounds to identify any that could potentially inhibit the virus. And a lot of our work is primarily on that um, on that front. So just trying to, we've set up screening assays in which we can replicate the virus. So we found different cells that we can get good replication. We found conditions in which we can look for active virus um, replication in particular cells. And so now we're just, you know, we've I've collaborate. I have collaborators in the UK, collaborators, you know, across the country. And people have just reached out to say, hey, I have these, you know, medicinal chemists and, you know, chemists that have been working on their favorite compound for years. And they call and say, hey, do you want to, can you test this? Can you test that? And then we say, I say, sure, you know, we can test it. So for the most part, what we've been doing now is, is, is looking for inhibitors to try to find about, find out if we could find a magic bullet. Anything that uh, you found in particular about, you know, SARS-CoV-2? 
I know it's got you know about thirty thousand base pairs of RNA virus, et cetera. Um, anything interesting that you've been able to uh, to find that you think others haven't found yet? That you can talk well, about? well, well. One of the things that are that are of interest to me is that viruses like Ebola. Ebola has a specific number of genes in its genome, and and all of those genes are let's say in the virions. So there, so those are like structural components. So if you were to, you know, in, in theory, grab an Ebola virus out of the air and open it up, peel it open like an orange, you'll find all of the proteins that the virus makes. It's all in an actual virion. Now that's, really? yeah. So, so they all are a part of the structure of the virus. You know, if you, so the oh, virus. Okay. Wait a second. I thought, I thought, yeah, there was um, a capsid, and then the RNA or DNA was inside of it. But is yes, there anything yeah. else in there? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so there are so all the proteins are somehow going to be associated. So, if you grab an Ebola virus, open it up, all of the proteins that the virus makes is going to be there to a different extent. You know, there's going to be a low number of different proteins, but all the proteins are there. Um, for your alpha viruses, like chikungunya virus, chikungunya makes uh, what's called non-structural proteins and structural proteins. The non-structural proteins provide um, the complex that allows for the virus to replicate. But theoretically, those proteins are not gonna be present in the virion. So if you grab the chikungunya virus out of the air and peel that like an orange, you're not gonna see the non-structural proteins. You're only gonna see the structural proteins. So those, 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 are, those are two things to consider. With coronaviruses, because its genome is so complex, it makes a number of genes, some of which might be structural, some of which might not be structural, some of which are predicted to be made, and some of which we don't even know if they're actually made. And, and, and because of that, there's a gamish of things happening during the course of, a re of replication of SARS-CoV-2. One of the things that's caught in my eye is that with the thousands and thousands of papers and thousands and thousands of studies that have been going on, I don't think it's very clear what specific proteins the virus is making that's in its genome versus the specific proteins the virus may not be making that we predict to be in its genome. That, we, that has not been shown yet. So what I mean by that is that there's a number of predicted open reading frames and a number of predicted genes that we would say it should be making there isn't any definitive proof that it's making it. And why, that, why that's important is there might be genes the virus is making at certain times. There might be genes the virus is making in particular tissue situations. There might be genes the virus is, is modulating depending on where it is. But we don't know that yet. So there's a lot of basic biology from just a pure virus standpoint that we don't fully understand yet. And when... And, and that's going to take a, a really deep dive into some basic viral replication studies. And I think people are, you know, are, their head is in the right place in terms of trying to understand the disease that's being caused and the tissues that are being damaged and designing therapeutics and designing vaccines. But as a virologist, one of the questions I have is, do we know what genes the virus is making? And the answer to that right away is no. Yeah, within its armamentarium, it may not be using everything, is what you're saying. That's and and so that's what we need to know. Now, 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 I'm saying that like it's an easy thing to know, and it's not. Um, oh, I'm sure it's not. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 that's but that's something that's a curiosity 
um, to me. And, 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 you know, the thing with science is, particularly with COVID-2 that's going on, is that we're driven by the, you know, the things that can allow us to do the work we need to do. And, and, and so if, there, if there's an overwhelming desire for us to develop therapeutics, then that's going to be um, the focus where the most light is shined and the most light meaning the most people doing research who are really uh, high-end able, capable of doing it, they're going to be focused on that. If we then were to switch it and say, well, let's just understand uh, the biology of the virus and develop antibodies against all these different proteins, if, if that were to be what is then desired, then the focus can be shifted towards that. And, I'm, and I have no doubt that that can be determined right away. And the focus is shifted now on, you know, vaccine development and therapeutics, rightfully so. And so I think a lot of efforts is being put towards that, understanding what happens in individuals who are infected and all those things. So at some point, I, I, I would like there to be a push towards some basic virology and answering basic virological questions of the virus. Um, and, and, at, and at that point, we're going to get some more answers about how it replicates, where it replicates, when it replicates, what's the capacity. Once it replicates, how does it do? Remember I told you earlier about how VP35 and VP24 uh, thwart the innate immune system. Well, this virus probably does the exact same thing, but what are the proteins that are doing it? And how are those proteins doing it? How are those, are, does the virus make proteins that get secreted and signal and block secretion of signals? Like all of these basic functions that we know viruses can probably do. These are questions that, um, that we can ask of this virus and, and should be asked. And I, uh, I'm, 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 I have no doubt it's going to probably be addressed um, to some extent in the near future. Do you feel like they are being addressed or do you feel like uh, no one is and you're not understanding why? Um, I think they are being addressed. Um, I have no doubt because literally everybody is working on this. So I have no doubt that there's someone somewhere, you know, somewhere in Germany or, or you know, or Brazil. You know, there are, there are so many labs whose, whose entire focus now is, is trying to figure this thing out. So I, I have no doubt that we're going to get these answers. It's just a matter of time because I, I don't think there's ever been a time in which there's been such kind of unity in terms of everybody dropping what they're doing and saying, okay, we're going to work on this from, you know, we've stopped, we, well, we're starting it up again, but we stopped all our chicken, guinea, and Ebola work to, to focus on getting yeah, this terrible, strong it up, characterizing it. I know people who've done Ebola their whole life. They've stopped. They're just working on this. People who work on influenza, they're working on this. Like, the magnitude of work. That I think is, it's very, very foolish, but yeah. Yeah. So, so I have no doubt. I mean, we've made the, the advancements in understanding this virus is at, um, for a person who works on viruses, the amount that we've learned about this virus in such a short time, it's, it's amazing. Cause when you, when you compare it to like how long it took us to learn basic things about Ebola, basic things about other viruses. When, when, when everyone focuses on this one particular problem, the speed at which something can be designed and developed, it's phenomenal. It's, yeah, yeah. it's inspiring. It's, all, it's, it's inspiring, man. Like I'll tell you, so I did my PhD at Mount Sinai and I have a lot of friends who, when New York got bombarded and people were, you know, couldn't go to the lab 
he like individuals, um, friends of mine who are faculty members, you know, they volunteered to go to the hospital. They volunteered to make their own PPE because there was none available just so they can stay in the lab to try to figure out how the virus works, how what's happening. Then they told then, you know, they had students who couldn't work, but students were volunteering to come and show up to work as well. There is this big effort of people. And then the restaurants was bringing food to the hospitals because there were scientists working, you know, 16 hour days, 19 hour days to just try to first identify the virus, characterize the virus, figure out how it replicates. What are the antibodies it's generating? Mm. There's, there's a lot of people who put their lives on the line just to understand what for us is going to be a sentence in a, in a podcast, you know? Yeah, (laughs) that's true. That's true. And that goes, that goes underreported and underappreciated a lot, I think. I'm sure it does, yeah. All we see in the media is just fear and, you know, no, no knowledge, no information, just, just fear. So I'm glad that scientists are working to try to understand everything involved with SARS-CoV-2. Because we need that. Without information, yeah. all that everyone's going to do is keep saying, we don't know, we don't know, and make no progress. So. Yeah, and, and, and I think another thing that the general population should know is an, an, another, another beautiful thing that occurred in this time period is if you were following, like I follow, you know, I'm on Twitter, but I'm a scientist, so I follow scientists. I don't get involved in politics or any of that stuff. But like a lot of things that scientists were doing around the world, like guys in Belgium and guys in Germany, whenever they found something instead of trying to publish it right away and keeping it secret, they released all the information. Uh, when, when people developed assays and they said, look, I knew how to, I have an assay to quantify the virus. Here's my protocol. Anyone who needs it can call me. I can give it to you. People were giving away all their data and all their information. And that's not something we do, but that was what scientists were doing all around the world. People were tweeting, hey guys, we just developed this new assay. If anyone wants to learn how to use it, here's my information get in touch with me. If you need any of these reagents, I'll mail them to you right away. This was happening like on a daily basis. As soon as someone made a big discovery, here's all the information I have. Here's the reagents if you need it. It was really great. It's still happening now, but it was... I was going to ask you, right, is it still... uh, It's still... still, still There's still this... There's still data sharing. There's still, hey, I have this reagent that works really well. If you need it, let me know. Okay. And that doesn't happen all the time. Especially... Oh, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I know. It's usually the opposite, so that's excellent. That's good to hear. Yeah, usually it's like I got this, and you don't. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> well, very good. Well, well St. Patrick, we're, we're just about out of time. What's the best way? You mentioned you're active on social media. How can people listening to the podcast uh, follow up and learn more from you? Um. So, um, let me look. I think my Twitter handle is uh, Read Lab. That's fine. It's R E R E I D Reed, your last name? Yeah, R E I D Reed Lab. And my handle is at St. Patrick Reed 3. Okay. And so, Excellent. yeah, anyone can ask me. I'm, I'm available for any questions. I'm always happy to talk science, always happy to um, help any way I can to help break it down. Because I, I think one of the problems in the past is that there's a, a, a disconnect, and, and scientists live in a very insular world where we just take for granted that the information we have available to us is not the information that everyone else has. So when something happens and people are like, hey, develop a vaccine, well, it takes years to do that. And, and, yeah. and, and the idea of how long it takes for therapeutics, how long it takes for these things to exist, I think is what 
sometimes lends itself to conspiracy theories, lends itself to disinformation, lends itself to slowing the progress of just the general public being better informed. So a lot of that falls on scientists to to help to propagate useful information and, and productive information as opposed to just speaking to other scientists. Um, so, so these yeah. things are great to have the opportunity to be able to do that. Yeah, and one last thing, not to embarrass any listeners, but I've learned, and I didn't know this at one point myself, I didn't know the difference between a bacteria and a virus. And okay. a lot of people out there still don't know that. And that's okay. Uh, They're not scientists and everything. But, and, you know, you could say, oh, my God, how could you not know that? Whatever. But I didn't at one point. And from my conversations with just people around me, most people don't. So if people don't even know that level of science because they don't, it's not in their everyday world, how would they ever know what goes into making a vaccine, for instance. So I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. And I mean, and I think, I think that's the, I like to, I like to always tell my students that it's, it's incumbent upon them. Like if you're a scientist and if you're studying, you know, virology, for example, you actually have a a responsibility to society to do your best or try your best to, to explain it, to make, when, when we try to get grants, the grants we get from the NIH is taxpayer money, right? Like, we should be able to justify what we're trying to do to the taxpayer yeah. because they're the ones that's funding the research we're doing. Very true. Well, St. Patrick, thanks for coming. It's been a great call with you. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.